Are you already there? Because I don't hear any pages. I guess when you teach through a book and uh, people every week kind of know where we're at, so it's like they're there, they're already turned there before I get up here and start preaching. So far, in chapter 15, just a brief review, we have examined the following. The first church heresy, according to the book of Acts, the first heresy, the first lie within the church to sort of rise up. We looked at that at 15 verses 1 to 5. Men entered the church at Syrian Antioch and taught the Gentile, which are non-Jewish uh, believers. They were also non-circumcised. These men came in and taught these uh, believers who were uncircumcised that circumcision was necessary for salvation. The church was thrown into confusion and, and disunity. Paul and Barnabas did their best to refute the heretics and restore order. Paul and Barnabas traveled to Jerusalem to bring the matter before the high court of the church, if you will, before the apostles. So that's something that we studied. We also learned about the first ecumenical council um, meeting. It's where the kind of the whole church came together to discuss this matter. Paul, Barnabas, and the apostles and elders that were down in Jerusalem formed a special group to discuss circumcision and salvation, to sort through this heresy and, and to figure out how to best deal with it. Uh, we also learned about the ecumenical verdict. That was verses 19 to 21. Uh, the council came to the conclusion that circumcision was not necessary, but that Gentile believers should abstain from things that do not promote unity and peace within the congregations. We learned about that. We learned about the ecumenical letter Verses 22 to 29, this is where we studied last week. The council wrote a letter to the Gentile believers in Syrian Antioch and Cilicia, welcoming them into the church of Christ and encouraging them to abstain from things that do not promote unity and peace within the congregations. Paul, Barnabas, Silas, and Judas were also selected to carry this very special letter back to the church at Syrian Antioch and the churches in that community up there. This morning, we will look at how the Gentiles responded to the letter once it was delivered. The title of this sermon this morning is The Gentiles' Response. You know, just a real clever, thoughtful, artistic title there. You know, I just put a lot of prep into that. You know, The Gentiles' Response. How artistic, right? And our passage will be chapter 15, verses 30 to 35. I'd like to read that text out loud. If you'd like to follow along, please, and read it right there silently, and then pray, and then we will uh, get to work. Does that sound good? Are you ready? Okay. 1530 to 35. Acts chapter 15, 15 uh, 30 to 35. <coughs> Pardon me. I, unfortunately, I'm probably going to be coughing and snarfing a little bit up here because, yeah, I know. Uh, just been dealing with this head cold. It started to come on last Sunday, so uh, and then it kind of went full-blown. So it's fun writing a sermon when you're real sick. I think we're going down Alice's, uh, you know, rabbit hole today. I don't know where we're going. Uh, hopefully not. Anyways, let's read the Bible together. Verse 30, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, and when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. I love that. 
And Judas and Silas, who were them who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. And then it says in 35, But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And Father, um, I pray that you would magnify yourself today in the midst of human weakness, Lord. Um, I am once again reminded through just a, a simple head cold and chest cold and not feeling well that I really and truly am nothing apart from you. And we tend to think that we've got some, something to offer, some ability, some, some gifts and things and some talent when we feel well. And Lord, you have reminded me that I'm a slug without you. And so God, I, God, I pray that you would magnify yourself this morning in the midst of my weakness. Every person in this room is weak. Magnify yourself in the midst of all of us. Every one of us has thorns in these things. Every one of us needs to rely on you solely. And so, God, I pray that you're magnified, and I pray that your word would be clear. Lord, that's a big fear of mine this morning, that, that it wouldn't be because of my lack of ability to do something to, to explain and to preach. And, and yet you're not reliant on my abilities at all. And so, God, I pray that you would speak clearly to your people here. Your word would be clear. Your call to them would be clear. Your command would be clear. Your grace, the gospel, would be clear. And so um, have your way here in our midst, Lord, and we give this time to you. Teach us something. May we come to know you in a deeper way, come to love you in a deeper way, and obey you out of great gratitude and love for you, out of thankfulness. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Verse 30, friends, let's pick up there. I've got peppermint tea, so I'm going to be drinking this. <clears throat> you got to keep my throat nice and wet because it's pretty, pretty burning. So anyways, verse 30, it says, so when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they <clears throat> delivered the letter. And so the first thing that we see in the text is that the messengers, those who were selected and sent to send the message to send the letter, the first thing that we see in the text is that they actually made it to Syrian Antioch, and the Bible uses that colloquial kind of thing that they went down to, but Syrian Antioch was in fact to the north. And so what we see first off is that they, they made it there, they made their journey, and if you've been listening to our sermons or been here in the past, you know that that is, uh, was in and of itself quite a feat, um, because Jerusalem was 300 miles south of Syrian Antioch, 300 miles away, uh, quite a distance. Uh, today, Syrian Antioch is known as Antakya, which is in southern Turkey near the Syrian border. This journey, 300-mile journey, would have taken about 10 days on foot. That's if they walked for eight or nine hours and then slept throughout the night. And so this, this is, this is, this is this, and this wasn't no road trip. They didn't pack up the family truckster, right, and drive up there. They didn't catch a flight. They didn't catch the monorail. They didn't get Amtrak. These dudes walked. If they didn't walk, it would have been by donkey back. And uh, if you've ever seen a donkey, they're not all that compliant. And so 
Um, but just imagine with me walking this distance. I, I would think that, you know, uh, hold on a second. You just picked me to, to deliver this letter. Did you guys factor in that that's a 300-mile walk? That would be me, right? That would be the flesh. I would be like, man, that's, that's, a, that's a serious responsibility. And so this was a massive, massive trip. Um, obviously, we've talked about this in the past. You know, there were only a couple of routes up to this place, and they were very treacherous. If they weren't mountainous, they were dry and desert with serpents and snakes and scorpions, and there were robbers and bandits all over the place. You know, and so this was, a, this was a, a, quite a feat to make it to this particular place. <clears throat> As I was uh, just pondering that, you know, I was kind of reminded of the Good Samaritan parable that Jesus told and that it may have actually been derived from a true story. He may have pulled that from a true story where there might have been, a, you know, this guy that was traveling and then he was beaten up by, you know, bandits on these travel routes. And so this was a, this was a dangerous kind of route in a, in a long, long, long journey. And so it's, it's quite astonishing that they actually made the trip. They did make it and they arrived. And once... They arrived, they gathered the church together to deliver the letter. It says it there. So as soon as they got there, they brought everyone together. <clears throat> and then if we look at 31, it says, And when they had read it, somebody, Paul, Barnabas, or Silas, or Judas, somebody read it, or they appointed somebody to read it. But it says, And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. The response by the people in the gathering was rejoicing. They rejoiced. And this is really incredible to me. This is really amazing. You know, and, and, and it's even, I guess, a little bit perplexing when I ponder my own flesh and things like that. Think about this. Why, why did they rejoice when this letter uh, was read? Some think that they rejoiced and, and this would be probably the more fleshy answer. Uh, some think that they rejoiced because the Gentiles just figured out that they didn't have to get circumcised. <laughs> it's not that that's a bad thing, right? Woo! Thinking about that all week. Wasn't sure that that was something I really wanted to commit myself to. Uh, I love Jesus, but, whoa, man, that's, I'm 48 years old. You know, I, some think that that might have been kind of the primary drive behind the rejoicing. Oh, it's not required, so hallelujah, praise the Lord. You know, I think it's much, much deeper than that in the text. It, that's kind of a surfacey kind of, yeah, it comes to mind, it might have, might have played a part, but I think it's much, much deeper than that. It, it goes beyond that, because that's not what the letter says or the text says. In fact, the letter never mentions circumcision. Do you remember where it says anything about circumcision in the letter? Never even makes the point. Never even mentions it. Never uses the word. You, one would almost read the letter and, and, and think, okay, they went down there to discuss this thing with circumcision and salvation, and yet they gave no reply to that in the letter. It would almost appear. They did, in a way. It was much more subversive, but... Go back and read the letter. It doesn't say anything about circumcision. It doesn't say, hey, yo, don't get circumcised. It doesn't say, hey, yo, get circumcised. It doesn't even mention it. It doesn't in a direct way, that would be. I'm going to challenge you to go back and reread, maybe not right now, you might get distracted, but go back on your own time and read 15, 23 to 29 to see for yourself. 
I do suspect that not having to get circumcised may have played a role in their rejoicing. But the cause for their rejoicing is actually in verse 31. How often do we read the Bible and, and read the verses and, and, and miss the point that's in the text? We start to speculate and wonder, well, they, got, they didn't have to get circumcised. That's got to be it. All right, let's put that in all the commentaries and run with that. When the answer is actually in the verse, the answer is in the verse. The cause for their rejoicing is actually in verse 31. It says encouragement. Do you see it? It says encouragement. Encouragement was the cause for their rejoicing. The letter encouraged them and they therefore rejoiced. How did the letter encourage them? Encouragement came in two forms. If we look back at the letter, and I'm not going to give another exposition on it, but if you were to look back through it, you will notice that encouragement came in two forms, and they are affirmation and exhortation. Affirmation and exhortation. Affirmation means to declare something as right, true, or positive. That's what affirmation means. Very simple example. If I were to come alongside of my, my friend Paul over there and say to him, your service has been you know, pleasing to the Lord and beneficial to this church, I would be affirming his service to the Lord. Would I, wouldn't I? If I were to watch what he does and I were to come and say to him, brother, I so appreciate and love you, your faithfulness, and I am saying this to him right now, you know, I, I would be affirming his service. I were to come to him and say, you know, I, I'd probably change some things because, whew, you know, oh, it quite lines up. That'd be different. That would be an affirmation. But if I were to do that, that would be an affirmation. That's what it means to affirm. It means to come alongside of someone and to point out the good that they're doing and to agree with it and to encourage them based on that. And, and that's, in fact, what we see in the letter to some degree. And what would Paul do if I affirmed him in that way? He would rejoice, wouldn't he? He would say, praise the Lord, man. Affirming is similar to approving. It could be the same thing in a way. Now, the letter affirmed the Gentiles in several ways, both directly and indirectly. Um, a couple of ways I'll mention. One I really kind of put forth before you last week, and that's that the Gentiles were affirmed by being called Adelphos, or brothers in Christ. I covered that last Sunday in much more detail. <clears throat> the Jewish leaders, the ecumenical council, called the Gentile believers up north Adelphos, which means brothers in Christ. We saw that back in 23, verse 23. Now, this was huge. Gentiles were rejected as brothers in Christ by the Judaizing heretics, the liars who came. Why? Because they were uncircumcised. The ecumenical council, however, overrode that judgment in verse 23 by declaring them brothers. You are our brothers. The unifying thing between Jewish and Gentile believers obviously was not circumcision. It was faith. Faith is what unifies people in Christ and to one another and draws people to each other. It's faith that does this. And that was the uh, unifying thing, if, if you will. 
The unifying thing between them was faith. The council knew this and then made that very, very clear in verse 23 by calling them brothers. You are our brothers through faith. That's what brings us together. That's what puts us in the covenant family. Now imagine being adopted into a, a good family. And for three years, this family has loved you, cared for you, nurtured you, and secured you, worked to secure you into their fold. And then one day, a group of men who claim to be of the highest authority come into your house and declare that you are not a part of that family and never can be unless you follow their special rules. This is what the Judaizers did. That is exactly what they did. They came in to the house of the Lord and declared very boldly that you got people here that, are, that belong, obviously you Jewish people over here, but you've got all these others, the majority were Gentiles, that do not belong to this family because you do not, you have not met this particular stipulation. Imagine what that would be like for you to be adopted and loved and cared for. This has been going on for years up in Syrian Antioch. And then to be told, you're not a part of this. And, and you can't be unless you submit to us and you do this particular thing. Then you can be. But the council declared in not so many words, you were adopted through faith into the covenant family of God, the church. And you will remain in the family, the covenant family of God, despite what the Judaizers say. You are our Adelphos brothers. Hallelujah, right? Man, this was, this was the affirmation that the Gentiles were looking for. They had been divided and separated and condemned because of something to do with their flesh. Their faith was neglected and thrown out, and they were dismissed from the family in some sense. And here the council says, no way, man, you're our brothers. What an affirmation, right? We kind of knew that all along, but man, those guys sure confused us because they started, and they were really good at saying what they said. They were really well rehearsed in practice because, man, they had me down. I, I thought, man, I don't even belong to the Lord here. Ecumenical Council just completely overrode that and said, eh, no way, man, you belong. You are our brothers. What an affirmation, right? Another way they were affirmed, the Gentiles were affirmed when their pastors were affirmed. Their pastors were Paul and Barnabas. In verse 25, back in the letter, we read that the council called Barnabas and Paul, what? Our beloved. Our beloved. A term of endearment, affection towards the brother in Christ, towards the pastor. Our beloved. This was a, a type of approval or, af or affirmation of Barnabas and Paul the council said, in effect, they are part of our beloved brotherhood or the beloved of Christ. In verse 24, however, the council uh, referred to the false teachers, the Judaizers, really, in a sense, because they, they denounced them. They, they, they called, basically, Paul and Barnabas beloved, but they really referred to, in sort of a, uh, in a way, to the Judaizers, the false teachers, as rogue and unauthorized. Uh, you know, they said that they came from us, but we're telling you they didn't. And we're telling you that they had no authority from us whatsoever. And so, in one way, they're saying of Paul and Barnabas, they're our beloved. Those are your pastors. Those are the real men of God. These other guys, they're rogue. They're doing their own thing, and it ain't cool. 
And they're not authorized. They were not sent out by us. The council deliberately juxtaposed the right guys, Paul and Barnabas, against the wrong guys, the Judaizers. One group was beloved and the other was rogue and unauthorized. The Gentiles understood this loud and clear. They were encouraged to hear that the, their pastors, those men who had given so much time and resource and love and encouragement to them, were the right guys, right? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing to sit under someone's teaching for years and to find out they're a heretic? Oh my gosh, what do I do now? Well, right here, man, it's like the council totally affirmed your there are beloved. These guys are not, man. These guys are bad. And so that's, a, that's another way that they were affirmed. And a, and a nice, simple way to look at this. Oh. When a teacher is affirmed, his students are also affirmed. A right teacher will produce right students with right Doctrine, And it really is God that does these things. But this man is used to do this and to achieve God's purposes. When a teacher is denounced, his students are also denounced. Right? A wrong teacher will produce wrong students with wrong doctrine. And Jesus gave one of the most supreme examples of this and pointed this out to the scribes and Pharisees. He said that, Every student or disciple they made was twice a son of hell as themselves. The Pharisees and scribes were hypocrites and had no love of God or for God in their hearts. They had outward appearances of being religious. They, and Jesus went toe-to-toe with them. And, and Jesus pointed these things out about them and then even you know, made these guys understand that every time you go out and get a new student or disciple or a convert, you make them twice a son of hell as yourself. And so a great point that Jesus makes there, and it is true, the teacher will produce like-minded students and vice versa. And on the contrary here, you know, Barnabas and Paul were beloved or right, and so were the Gentiles they ministered to. The Gentiles were affirmed and encouraged when they heard that their teachers were beloved, which really translates as right, And they did what? When they found out, man, our guys, the guys have been raising us up and encouraging us, they're they're on the right team. What did they do? They rejoiced. They rejoiced when they found out that their pastors, their preachers were right. Now, another way they were encouraged was through exhortation. Exhortation means to earnestly advise or incite someone to do something. In the letter, the council exhorted the Gentile believers to avoid things that can disturb uh, the peace and unity of the church. The council said, in effect, if you avoid eating things that the Jews do not believe they can eat, and from sexual immorality, you will do well. This exhortation was given, as I pointed out last week, in the form of good godly advice rather than as law or, or some sort of a dictate. Now, now, don't get me wrong. There came many, many ecumenical council meetings after this one where there were definitive things said, decisive things said, and there was law handed down. And so don't, don't think that, you know, that every time that a council came together to deal with heresy, they did, well, we would suggest that you believe this. No, at most of them, it was this is the truth, 
you're either with us or you're against us. They drew lines in the sand, if you will. But in this particular instance, it was really more of a good advice kind of piece. And, and, and that good advice, that exhortation to avoid those things that would divide, how were they received? How was that exhortation received? Joyfully, it says in our text. The Gentiles <laughs> didn't balk. They didn't squawk. They didn't complain one iota when they heard they might have to give some things up. I love this. In fact, if most Christians were to respond the way these Gentiles did back then, in today's context, if they were to respond the same way with rejoicing, I don't know what I would do. I, I, would, I would probably just say, rapture me. I've reached the pinnacle. Probably in my own life. I mean, seriously. I'd do backflips. Many, many in the church today despise authority, despise instruction. They spurn instruction. They despise exhortation, admonition, these things that are completely necessary. And I don't want to sound like I'm picking on any one generation in particular, but this is most prevalent amongst millennials. And I'm, I, I love millennials. I've done ministry side by side with one, young adults for years and years and years. They're, they're, they're wonderful to work with, such energy and zeal. <clears throat> I used to, uh, something about those 80s and 90s babies, right? I used to uh, serve alongside many millennials at Big Valley. And I've also done young adult small groups and Bible studies, so I have a lot of experience with millennials. <clears throat> Love them. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not picking on them in particular because this happens in all demographics and generations. I'm simply sharing from my own experience. The fact is there are rebellious types in every generation and demographic, my own included, Generation Xers. Uh, if, and here's from my own experience. If, let's say if one of my, you know, back in the day, one of my young adult leaders, one of my millennial leaders, you know, got off track and started to do something foolish, you know, or what have you, I would... You know, pull them aside and exhort and encourage them to change direction and whatever. And, and, you know, ten times out of ten, they would immediately rejoice at my words. No. Uh, eh. In most cases, it was, who are you to tell me this or that? Or my personal favorite, where in the Bible does it say it's wrong? I used to love that one. I would usually respond, look, it's, here's an overview of 1 Corinthians. It says it in 18 places. Now shut up and stop doing it. No, I didn't do that. I sure thought it, though. Okay? I actually came in prepared because I knew you would say this. Here, read this. You know? And then they'd read it and go, yeah, I don't see it. Uh, right there in verse 2, I still don't see it. Come on. This happened a lot. This happened uh, very often, you know. There was this kind of like, you know, everything's cool and, oh, we're brothers, we're Adelphos, I love you. Hey, bro, man, I, I've noticed this going on. And, hey, man, you want to fight? You know, it's like, I thought we were Adelphos, you know. Brothers fight, you know. Okay, Rocky, you know. Yo, hey, it happened all the time, man. You know, I was kind of. Kind of a, wasn't a rare thing, almost just about every time. I've even had someone just look me in the face and say, who do you think you are? You know? Uh, nobody. 
just a sinner saved by grace like you, but man, let me tell you, brother, you know, you know, you don't even know what I've done for the Lord and for this ministry. You know, it's like, oh my gosh. These are some of the responses by some of these young adults, you know, they just, they just put it on you, you know. What is it about young adults in exhortation? What is it about other generations in exhortation? You know, the whole purpose of exhortation is to encourage and build people up, man. It's not to control people. It's not to put people under the thumb, man. I suppose our culture doesn't help, right? It breeds self-entitlement and self-centeredness. Moral relativism plays a huge part in the minds of people. I will determine what is morally right for me, and you will determine what is morally right for you, and tolerance will be the link that keeps us together. Right? Isn't that, isn't that the philosophy, the prevailing philosophy in our culture, in our world today? You, what's good for you is good for you. Hallelujah. What's good for me is good for me. Hallelujah. Tolerance. Ah. The amazing thing is that both groups are completely intolerant towards each other. Hey, you can't do that. Hey, you can't do that. Common bond. The common bond is tolerance. Yeah, right. Even the church plays a part in these things, a negative role in some way. <clears throat> It does it when it exalts individualism through six-point self-help sermons. Well, if you want to get from point A to point B, you just follow these six steps. Because it's all about you. Addiction relief. You know, oh, you, you got this crippling thing. Don't, don't get me wrong, I'm not opposed to helping people with addiction. But, you know, you got all these programs and structures in place now to take people through a whole process you know, and it, it, can be a, it can be a very individualizing kind of thing and process. Creating a greater reliance on oneself in a very covert sort of way. And I think one of the biggest things the church does to exalt individualism and perpetuate this garbage is the rampant consumerism. Tailoring everything in the service for the seeker. Everyone out there is looking for Jesus. They just don't know it. Nobody's looking for Jesus. They hate him. They put him on a cross. And what do we do? We take our services and we tailor them and spend millions on lighting and fancy schmancy stuff and comfort and you know, all these things, all in the name of reaching people. But it really boils down to consumerism. It really boils down to you know, lavishing individuals with every luxury in hopes that they'll pray some kind of prayer or just hang around. Who knows? At the end of the day, there is so much emphasis placed on the individual that the individual is made uh, to believe that he or she is a type of sole proprietor in the church. And when one comes along and and, and questions or challenges the individual, the individual feels that his or her individuality or rights or freedoms are being threatened. This is what happens. The concept of not belonging to self is completely absent in today's church. It's gone. It's been gone for a while, this idea of I don't belong to myself. 
The church perpetuates, you belong to you, and you're what's most important. You know, the church has become one, you know, never-ending Maybelline commercial loop. It's all about you. It's all about you. Listen to T.D. Jakes for six seconds. It's all about you, Osteen. It's all about you. And there's other guys that do it too that you would never suspect, but it's there. That's the loop in the church today. Individualism is exalted to the highest, highest levels. You come to someone who's constantly told that, they're, that it's all about them and all these things, and you come to this person and you challenge them and you exhort them, and they reply with, how dare you? The whole attitude is, don't you know who I am? Don't you understand who I am? in my contributions and what I've done and what I've accomplished. And people want to be an individual and part of the church. <laughs> they want both. People want to be an individual and a Christian. I'm a Christian and I'm this. I'm a person and I'm Phil and I'm also a Christian. They, they don't want bleed over. The world has trained people to be like this. The church has helped to train people to be like this. This is why church membership is one of the most despised and rejected subjects or features in the church. People hate it, especially younger folks. They think in the original Greek, the word for membership is Beelzebub. That's the proper translation. You're telling me I, I already belong to the universal church. How dare you tell me to join a local congregation? Don't you understand that that's properly translated? It's up? Well, they really hate it. It's a toxic subject for them. They think that church membership will threaten my individualism. They will try to correct me. They will try to control me. Oh, no. I know I'm dramatizing it, but it's so very true. <clears throat> and then in contrast to all of this, <laughs> you have the word of God. You have the church at Syrian Antioch. The Gentile believers there were exhorted to avoid things that would create problems for the church. They had to avoid um, the higher quality meats, uh, you know, because that's the kind of meat you sacrifice to an idol. So stay away from the, the USDA grade AA, AAA, off the hizzy stuff that melts in your mouth. Stay away from that stuff because it's been sacrificed to, to idols. They had to prepare their foods. These are the things that were asked. Prepare their foods a little differently. No more strangling their, their food in game and, and no more bloody steaks. They had to avoid their, their old sexual practices like porn and fornication, you know. And at the, the reading of these things, right, because they were in the letter, at the reading of these things, they did not respond like some in the church today would, right? The council has some nerve. Who are they to tell me that I should avoid eating meats offered to, to, to false gods that I don't even believe in? I don't believe in idols. I don't believe in any of that. I should be able to eat, you know, that, that type of pork. Who are they to tell me? The council has some nerve. Who are they to tell me how I should prepare my food in game in a certain way? Who are they to tell me that I should do that? The council has some nerve. Who are they to tell me I should avoid eating bloody steaks, bloody meat? Who are they? Some nerve. 
The council has some nerve. Who are they to tell me that I should avoid sleeping with my girlfriend? Don't they understand that we're in love? That's today's response. How dare they? The Gentiles, however, at Syrian Antioch rejoiced by doing so. They didn't, they didn't question. By, through their rejoicing, they, they displayed great, great maturity and great character. Their response is a testimony to the discipleship efforts of Paul and Barnabas who worked tirelessly to mold these believers into the image of Christ. Their rejoicious response tells us three very important things about them. Okay? I'm going to give them to you. Number one, peace was more important to them than privilege. The letter was written to them in an effort to maintain peace. This is why they were instructed to avoid things that would break peace amongst their Jewish brothers. And obviously, and, and you know what, were they, did they have certain freedoms and liberties and, and privileges to engage in meat, sacrifice, did that mean anything to them? Absolutely not. They had the privilege to do it. They had the, the freedom and liberty to engage in that. I don't think sexual immorality is a good thing ever. But because of the cleansing blood of Christ and the grace of Christ, they were covered, they were saved once and for all. And, and in that blessing, there are certain liberties. And guess what? If, if, if eating meat sacrificed to an idol doesn't mean anything to you other than just good meat, then, then dig in. And, and yet, they... We're like, we're, 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 we're cool with not doing it. Why? Because if that's what it takes to maintain the peace of our congregation, because it's going to throw a whole bunch of Jewish believers off because they were never raised to eat those things. They don't understand their liberty at this point. They, they, they're like, dude, we, we'll just go ahead and not eat those things or exercise those liberties, our privileges for the sake of peace. Number two, Purpose was more important to them than person. See, they considered the purpose of the church, the mission of Jesus Christ, to be more important than them as individual people. I've got these certain rights that I've gotten through Christ, but if it disturbs the peace and, and, and it screws things up, it screws up the purpose of the church, so be it. I will avoid those things because guess what? The purpose of the church, which is the gospel of Jesus, is far more important than me eating a stupid pork sandwich. Amen? Purpose was more important to them than person than individual the purpose of this whole thing that we're doing together is far more important than me and what I should or, sh or what I can and cannot do and number three piety was more important to them than pleasure Eating really, really good meat prepared just right is very pleasurable. Sexual immorality can be very 
pleasurable to the flesh. And yet, piety, which just basically means personal holiness, was more important than we will sacrifice off. We will, we will avoid these things that we may maintain individual personal piety and the piety of the body. These things are pleasurable, but guess what? The reputation of individual Christians and the reputation of Christ's bride itself is far more important. The piety, the way the world sees it, it's so much more important than my own personal pleasure. And how about us? Our peace purpose and piety more important to us than privilege, person, and pleasure? Friends, these are not abstract thoughts or philosophical ideas. We are talking about the heart and disposition of true believers. The heart of a true believer is a heart of sacrifice. Laying down one's life laying down one's person, laying down one's pleasure, laying down one's privileges, even if Christ has given them to us. Romans 12, 1 to 2, we heard it earlier. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the Gentiles modeled for us what it means to be a living sacrifice right here in this very text. They considered it a joy to sacrifice their privileges, person, and pleasure for the sake of the peace, purpose, and piety of Christ's church. And we must, must also understand this. It is not only the disposition of a true Christian, the actual heart attitude of a true Christian to live sacrificially. That comes built in with the Holy Spirit and regeneration. You're going to switch. When someone is truly saved, they switch. Their disposition changes. They have this great heart of love and gratitude to Jesus and a sacrificial attitude and heart. Like, I, wanna, I just want to please you with my life. I want to glorify you. That, that, it's, not, it's not only... That it's not only a new disposition, but you must understand that it is our duty. We are obligated to live sacrificially. Why? 1 Corinthians 6 19 to 20. You are not your own. For you were what? Bought with a Price, so glorify God in your body. I think that's what I had read to you earlier. I can't remember what I had read. That was the cold meds on Tuesday. Bottom line, church, we do not belong to ourselves. We are not mere individuals. We are not sole 
proprietors. We belong to Christ who paid for us with his blood. We belong to the brotherhood of believers, which is the church. And we belong to each other as members in God's covenant family. We are sons and daughters of the same God, subjects of the same king, and members of the same kingdom. We are a royal priesthood. We are aliens and strangers in a foreign land. We are the assembly of the upright. We are the branch of God's planting. We are the city of the living God. We are the flock of God. We are the fold of Christ. We are God's heritage. We are the lamb's wife. We are the lot of God's inheritance. We are the mountain of the Lord's house. We are the new Jerusalem. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. We are the sanctuary of God. We are the temple of the living God. We are God's vineyard. Notice something about all those titles for the church. As beautiful and as encouraging as these titles for Christians can be, we need to be mindful of something very important here, friends. Do not miss this. The only individuals mentioned in those titles are God and Christ. We believers or Christians are always referred to as a body, assembly, or type of collective. It is true that God knows and loves us as individuals, but it is equally true that God knows and loves us as a group. Think of this in terms of redemption. Christ died not just for you, but for many. Think of this in terms of the body of Christ. Every Christian is a member of the body of Christ, and there is only one body and only one head, which is Christ himself. Here's my point. We are not mere individuals, and therefore do not belong only to ourselves. We belong to Christ and to each other. This grace-given gift and supernatural entitlement comes with great responsibility. It is our duty to sacrifice all that disturbs, anything that destroys the peace, purpose, and piety of the body of Christ. We should imitate Paul who poured himself out as a drink offering to God for the sake of the church. Paul sacrificed his privileges, his person, and his pleasure for the peace, purpose, and piety of the church. And so did his Gentile disciples in Syrian Antioch. That's exactly what we've been reading about, friends. Now let's take a look at 32 through 35. The majority of time will be spent where we were, and we'll, we'll look at these things briefly. <clears throat> Are you tracking with me? I know I can't give it the big gusto today because I feel like my lung's going to fly out. But uh, I, hope you're, I hope you're hearing from the Lord here. I hope, I hope that, honestly, I hope that the conviction of his spirit is heavy because I got annihilated this week. And I'm like, God, I'm sick. I can't handle anymore. What are you doing? You know? <clears throat> 32. And Judas and Silas 
who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had uh, spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Here we see Judas and Silas encourage and strengthen the Gentiles. Last week we, we learned that they had been sent with Paul and Barnabas to deliver the letter and physically testify to the council's position. It was like, okay, read the letter out loud. We're here to tell you this is exactly the heart of the, of the ecumenical council. This is what they mean. They were there to kind of affirm the letter, to build up the letter, and to encourage the believers. However, it would seem that the two might have gotten, become sort of caught up in the moment, and captivated by the Gentiles' faith, by the Gentiles' eagerness, and by the Gentiles' joy to the point, they got kind of caught up in these things to the point that they themselves were encouraged and then led by the Spirit to use their gifts to build up the brothers. That's what it looks like in the text. It's like they're sitting back and they're watching. They're probably expecting, oh my gosh, I got to give up pork. I got to, you know, and, and here the people are just rejoicing at, at the hearing of the council, which to them was the hearing of the Lord. And they're rejoicing in it like, yeah, man, we'll give up those things. Man, the peace of the church, the purpose, you know, these things are important. We'll give them up. And these guys, I think, were just kicking back going, what in the heck is going on here? I wish things were this easy back in Jerusalem. The Lord has got something going special here. Anyone notice this? Judas, are you going to step up and say something? What are you talking about? I just wrote a sermon. He's back there, you know. I got I to gotta encourage these people. This is unreal. You know the Jews had very low expectations for Gentiles. I think they got kind of caught up in this thing, and then they kind of engaged you ever had that happen to you, man, where you're listening to someone testify and you're like, hey, brother, let me encourage you, you know? You just kind of jump in there and encourage them too. I think that's how it went down. Judas and Silas were in total agreement with the attitude and response of the Gentiles. And they made sure that the Gentiles knew it. It says that they encouraged them. A affirmation here, guys. That's the right heart. That's the right response. That's the right attitude. You're willing to give these things up. That's what we're called to do. Probably what they said. Yes, that's the right heart. That's the right attitude, brothers. That is the kind of sacrificial love we are to have for the Lord and for his church. Amen, brothers. That's it. The text also says that they spent some time there. I like that. You notice that? They spent some time there. They didn't show up and drop off. They're not like my postmen, you know, foom, foom. off to the next house. That's his job. Not sure if I'd even talk to him if he stood there. What do you want? These guys didn't drop the letter and bounce. They didn't, hey, here you go. See how I got to make that 10-day journey back. I'm sure they probably wanted to prolong that trip back, right? Like, man. You know what? This has been amazing. This has been cool. This has like been the best day of my, second best day of my life. Wow, wonderful. Oh my gosh, we have to walk back. Ugh, 10 days. And these flip-flops are blown out. Look at this. Look at the hole in this thing. There's a tarantula right there. I think they got caught up in it and they, and they decided to, to stay and continue to encourage and continue 
to build up. They, they stayed there, and, and, and it doesn't say for how long. It could have been several days. It could have been several weeks. It could have been several months. They, they weren't in a hurry to get out of there. And here's a huge one. This is why it's so critical that we study the word of God slowly and read it slowly and ponder all that's there. This is monstrous. There is a monstrous detail right here in the text. Mind-blowing detail. It says they left in peace. You know why Luke included this detail? He wanted his readers to know that the Gentiles were not only obedient in word, but also in deed. After joyfully agreeing to the terms of the letter, they began to live out its terms. Pretty, pretty sick, isn't it? They left in peace. The only way that peace was to be established there is if they yielded to the Lord and sacrificed off those things to bring stability and peace in that congregation. Tell me that isn't amazing. That's why the detail's there. Luke didn't have to put that. Man, after agreeing to the terms of the letter, they began to live out its terms, and this resulted in peace. And Judas and Silas were first-hand witnesses to this. They experienced it. They were sent back to Jerusalem in peace. And then lastly in verse 35, we see that Paul and Barnabas remained in Syrian Antioch. No time given, but they stayed. What did they do during their stay? They did what they always do. They they did what was their normal custom. They preached the word of Christ. They proclaimed the gospel. They exhorted, admonished, rebuked, corrected, loved, you know, proclaimed the living word of God over these Gentiles to continue to build them up, to continue to form them into the image of Christ. That was what they did wherever they went. And then Luke added another nice little detail that others joined in on the teaching and preaching. I love that detail. Disciples were making disciples. Multiplication was happening, right? Because somebody, you don't just stand up and start teaching in these places. You have to be trained. There has to be some sort of training and trust given. Paul and Barnabas duplicated themselves. They multiplied themselves. They trained others how to preach, how to teach, how to exhort, and these kinds of things. And we see it right here. Paul and Barnabas weren't the only guys that did the teaching. Others were trained to do it. And what does that mean? It means that the great commission was being fulfilled. Go out, therefore, and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded, multiplying, Aaron pouring into you, you pouring into this person. That's what we do. We multiply. Amen. In closing... 
This has been the best tea of my life. I know I'm stupid. <clears throat> what might we take away from this sermon, from this passage? What might we take away? <clears throat> what does God want you to take away from it? Has he not spoken to you during our time together? I suppose the driving point of this sermon has been the example of the Gentiles. Their joyful willingness to sacrifice their privilege, person, and pleasure for the peace, purpose, and piety of Christ's church at the request of the council. In fact, I think there's nothing greater in this sermon than that point. It is the sharpest point. It is the dagger that is driven through the heart of every person in this room. Why? Because we are all sinful. Because we are all self-centered. Because we are all self-seeking. Because we are all selfish. It is absolutely true that we can learn from the Gentiles' example how to sacrifice joyfully. But let us not fix our eyes on other Gentiles, for they are but mere men and sinners like us. We have a higher standard than them. We have the Lord Jesus who made more sacrifices for the church who made the ultimate sacrifice for the church. He sacrificed himself on a cross. Why? To pay for our sin. He died to pay for our sin, to pay for our selfishness, for our self-centeredness. He died to purchase us. He died to save us. He died that we might become conformed to his very image and made like him. That is what salvation is. Christ was the reason for the Gentiles' action, for their joy and for their obedience. They didn't come up with this stuff on their own. For that is impossible for man. Christ was at work in those men and women. Christ was at work in Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas. It's all Christ. My prayer for us is that we would follow his example. That we would take up our cross as he took up his cross that we would sacrifice ourselves as he sacrificed himself, all to the glory of God. What is God calling you to bring to his altar this morning? What privileges 
do you need to bring to the altar? What about your person do you need to bring before the altar of God and sacrifice? What pleasures do you need to bring before the altar of God and sacrifice? What in your life disturbs peace of the church? That messes with the purpose of the church. That messes with the piety, the holiness of Christ's church. For me, I uh, have tried to, been trying to become a, a more disciplined man of God. And uh, just developing some, you know, some better reading habits of the word and, and some prayer times and, and these things. And, and I'm, I'm always astonished at what God says to me during these prayer times. I have a, a way that I pray. I pray, you know, I guess I'm making it look like I'm most important, but I do pray for myself. And I don't pray, God, give me all the blessings in the universe. I pray, make me like you, because I know I'm not. I pray for my wife. I pray for my children. I pray for this church, and I even pray for individuals as God brings them to my mind, but it, it's really hard for me to get past myself. Well, you're just selfish prayer. No, I just, I just, I, I'm just blown away by God, what, what he reveals to me about myself in these moments. And 10 times out of 10, it's, it's not good. And just as it is with anyone, I am selfish that I exalt my privileges, that I exalt this body, this tent, this person very high, that I love pleasure. When so much of my money goes into those things, so much of my time goes into those things. So much of my focus goes into those things. You know how this all really started for me the other morning? I prayed, God, first of all, make me a chief confessor at this church. Second of all, point out in the sermon that I've been working on where I fall short first. And God said to me very clearly, you need to deal with you before you... Tell the people this. Because you exalt all these things high. You're an abuser. I was just broken. Have you ever... been broken to the point where you felt hopeless where you keep telling yourself the gospel and it doesn't work 
Why do I keep doing these things, Jesus? What great joy. Apollos. Contrition. I'm learning that encouragement isn't, hey, Phil, you're doing great. Keep doing it. Encouragement comes in the form of, you're not doing great. You're, you're falling short in these areas. And, and I'm going to help you change these things about you that you may be conformed into the image of my son and preach these things to others. Anyone else ever feel like this? It's just a phenomenon that doesn't happen often enough in my, often enough in my own walk that I seem to pretty much just, I'm on cruise control, you know, click it and I'm just kicking back. Everything's cool. And it's not. I pray that we would all, especially me, yield to our sovereign God in every way. Don't you, as a Christian, want to be one who sacrifices all for Christ? And you start thinking about that, man. That's a heavy commitment, brother. Sister, I need, to, I need to look at my bank account. I need to look at the way I spend my... Don't just say it. I need to look at how I live. Is it happening? Is that represented in my giving? Is that represented in how I care for others? And yet I can't find any side route in Scripture. Take up your cross. He requires nothing less. Are you in agreement with me? Man, let's give it all to the Lord as best we can. Let's not spurn correction. Let's receive exhortation. Great joy. We actually care about each other. If I come to Aaron and say something, it's because I love him. If he says something to me, it's because he loves me. He wants to see Christ in me. Let's not spurn correction. Let's not neglect exhortation. Let's not take what God has said to us today and shown so clearly in his word and just, and just say amen and, and not do it. Let's send Judas and Silas off in peace. Let's obey physically what we've heard, not just in word. See, that can be done in the context of the body where we hold each other accountable and love each other and encourage each other along and exhort and admonish. Okay? Now, I just want to give you a little bit of time to come to terms. Let the Lord seek your heart during this time of communion. Before you take these elements, ask him to reveal to you these areas where it's really all about you. And confess them. And receive and you know you're forgiven, man. I'm forgiven. There's nothing I can do to change God's love for me. Can't sin my way out of it. You can't either.
confess these things, be made new in him in this very moment, and may we commit ourselves to living as sacrifices to him. Amen? Lord, your word jacks me up. And I know as an Abba father, a good father, that your intention is not to harm, but to change us. Even though sometimes these things are so weighty, profound, impactful, we get ourselves to this place of, I don't know if I'd call it despair, but saying, I don't know what to do. Your intention is to work in the midst of your children and to change them and to mold them to be like Christ. That is a promise. God, I pray that you would speak to each of these people, even in this moment of communion, before they take these elements, that you would show the areas where self has exalted above all things or where it's threatening. And when you point these things out and we confess them, may we not only agree, but do. We are to be not mere hearers of the word, but doers. And help us in this moment, Lord. May we know we are forgiven. That where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That in the power of the Holy Spirit, we actually can live differently every day. Thank you for what these elements represent. And that's the fact that without what Christ has done, there is nothing. We have no discussion, no focus, no hope, no nothing. What he did is the catalyst for even this conversation and teaching. We, we can do nothing apart from Christ Jesus. It's because of what he did that we could even consider sacrificing ourselves. What an example he has set for us. May we remember what these elements represent. His shed blood for the remission of our sin and his broken body and that it is a finished work. God, you're not calling us to earn something here. You're calling us to submit to you and to live rightly. And you've empowered us to be able to do so. And I pray, God, that we would. And we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Help yourselves.